listening to The Built Environment. I almost said on CFRC 11.9 FM because that is what I said when I was making radio for uh, several years there in Kingston. But no, we are played on CFRC every Thursday at 7 p.m. But predominantly, we are an online podcast about issues of systemic violence and community resistance in Canada. My name is Brenna, and I have started to head back east now uh, after leaving Toronto West on June 12th, and I'm producing this episode from Calgary, Alberta, which is Treaty 7 territory. The episode will explore some of the environmental action happening on Vancouver Island, where I just visited Tofino and Victoria. The two interviews in today's episode took place on unceded New Channels territories and territories of the Tamuk and Saanich peoples. We'll first hear from Torrance Cost, who is the Vancouver Island campaigner for the Wilderness Committee. And regular listeners may notice that we had the Wilderness Committee's climate change campaigner, Peter McCartney, on our episode exploring pipeline politics. And that's because Torrance connected me to Peter. I met Torrance as a member of the Canadian Youth Delegation last year, and we traveled together to the COP21 climate negotiations in Paris. Torrance and I focus on logging on Vancouver Island in this episode, particularly in the Walbrun Valley, which is located on the southwest coast of the island. According to the Wilderness Committee website, blockades in the early 90s helped to preserve parts of the Walbrand Valley, and in 1994, parts of the Walbrand and three other valleys were added to Carmana Pacific Provincial Park. However, the upper Walbrand Valley and parts of the Central Valley were relinquished to logging companies by the BC government. So in this episode, Torrance and I also talk about the changing nature of conservation in BC, particularly regarding the creation of provincial and national parks, which significantly limit First Nations legal rights to use the land. Also according to the Wilderness Committee, in 2014, flagging tape was discovered in the old-growth forest of the central Walburn Valley, leading to suspicions that logging company Teal Jones was planning to engage in logging in the area, which is actually clear-cutting. And so you can notice some of the photos associated with this episode are photos that Torrance took in that area. Just last year, Wilderness Committee obtained maps from Teal Jones showing that they were indeed planning to log eight cut blocks of ancient forest surrounding the iconic Castle Grove. Since then, the organization has been engaged in campaigns to preserve some of the most precious old growth still left on Vancouver Island. You can also find in the links and photos with this episode maps of those proposed cut blocks by Teal Jones. Torrance also leads trail building trips to Mears Island, just off Tofino. It is also unceded New Channels territory and home to old growth cedars. It's known to tourists of Tofino for its big tree trail. I was fortunate to visit during one of the Wilderness Committee's trail building trips, where Torrance was able to show us a tree with cultural modifications. And by this, I mean that a tree hundreds of years old had a section cut and burned out for use as the marker of a family home in a nearby New Channel community. 200 or more years later, the healthy tree has begun to grow around this section. And these old growth trees are 800, even 1,000 years old. And in some logging areas where there's old growth, I heard that while one-third of the trees in general are cedar, two-thirds of the logs being taken for processing are old growth cedar. These trees are a finite resource, a very significant carbon sink, meaning they store carbon which we relentlessly pump into the atmosphere. So they're an issue of climate change in addition to 
conservation and also really cultural significance for new channel canoe carving and and other elements of life. After Torrance, we'll hear from Bonnie Glambeck, who I spoke to in Tofino. She and her partner Dan Lewis founded Clackwat Action in 2013, but they have both been activists based in Tofino for 25 years. Clackwat Action is a conservation organization committed to protecting the biocultural diversity of Clackwat Sound. They run programming for public education, citizen research, monitoring, and advocacy. Mears Island, which I was just talking about, is located in Clackwat Sound. In the mid-1980s, there were blockades and legal action by both the New Channel and logging company Macmillan Blodell. The New Channel had declared a tribal park, and the court ruled that because the New Channel's territory is unceded, no development could occur on Mears Island until that was resolved, potentially never. I spoke to Bonnie about her beginnings in activism. She arrived in Tofino in time for the 1993 blockades against logging that were, at the time, the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Canadian being the keyword here because I didn't look too far into that, uh, that fact, meaning that's based on what white folks, what settlers in Canada can remember and also what we like to erase from history, I'm sure. In addition to logging, Bonnie and I also speak about the open pen salmon farms currently operating in Clackwat Sound, as well as the potential for two mine sites, one new and one repurposed. While the mine sites are not yet officially proposed, companies are prospecting, including Imperial Minerals, the same company that's responsible for the Mount Polly mine disaster, which happened almost two years ago exactly. The Mount Polly tailings pond burst, releasing 4.5 million cubic meters of slurry into Polly Lake and then onto Quesnel Lake. The stream connecting the two lakes was transformed from 2 meters wide to 50 meters wide, and water tests showed elevated levels of selenium, arsenic, and other metals from the mining tailings pond, and it devastated the local area, in which people also live. So the same company is prospecting in one of the world's most unique ecosystems, Clackwat Sound, for an open pit mine. And when we speak about salmon farms, salmon farming is the industrial production of salmon from egg to market. Uh, and I'm reading this from farmedanddangerous.org. Uh, most of the industry still uses open net cages in the ocean, and that's the case in Clackwat Sound. And these floating feedlots can hold up to a million fish in an area the size of two football fields, and they're placed in very close proximity to wild salmon streams and rivers. But the problem is that the kinds of diseases that can be bred in these farmed areas. So there was a study where over a billion sea lice eggs were produced by just 12 farms in a two-week period, and this can completely decimate the out-migration of wild juvenile salmon. A few other stats, two-thirds of the salmon consumed by Americans is farm-raised. The biomass of farm salmon at one farm site can equal 480 bull elephants. That's 2,400 tons of eating and excreting livestock. And we'll hear from Bonnie more about the Salmon Farms and Clackwat Actions campaign to move those nets onto land so that they're not integrating with the wild salmon and their habitat. Bonnie and I also talked about the designation of Clackwat Sound as a UNESCO World Biosphere in 2000, which doesn't actually afford the protection you might think. And I wanted to provide all of this context because there's really so much to learn about environmental activism and how movements for conservation are changing right now on Vancouver Island. I had no idea that what has been dubbed the War of the Woods in the 80s and 90s was so massive, maybe because I'm from Ontario. But I feel very grateful to have been afforded just a peek into action for the environment on Vancouver Island. And we'll hear from my friend Torrance with the Wilderness Committee first. 
So my name is Torrance Cost, and I am a campaigner with a, a multi-issue nonprofit group called the Wilderness Committee. Uh, we campaign on a whole slew of environmental issues uh, right across Canada, primarily Western Canada, and my sort of zone or area that I'm focused on is Vancouver Island. Um, we do climate campaigns, we do mining justice campaigns, and, uh, and a big focus of mine is forests and uh, forest conservation. Um, and that's what's kept me the busiest for the last, uh, certainly the last year. Um, since I've been with Wilderness Committee, which has been about four years, uh, I've worked on everything from salmon farms to pipelines and tankers um, to a coal mine campaign um, that we actually this summer uh, won. That was the first. That was the first campaign since I've been with the organization that has come to an end uh, and and the end that we wanted it to come to, which was which was really uh, which was really good. Um, the community uh, in the Comox Valley fought the mine back. It was called Raven Coal and. Uh, we did a we were in a support role in that campaign and just to bring attention to it in Victoria and a little bit on the mainland too um, was uh, yeah was a great part to play and and again that that had a, a positive outcome um, so forests you know ac across Vancouver Island like rainforests are uh, still contentious like the war in the woods you know this is part of like the history of environmentalism in Canada in North America uh, in the world when it comes to a high profile area like Clackwood Sound. Um, and despite being like really prominent in the 1990s, uh, the issues haven't gone away. There have, there have been some gains made, but um, those issues haven't gone away. And uh, we're unfortunately like focused on smaller areas now, just because that's all that's left. But uh, they're still of critical ecological importance, recreational importance, um, and, uh, and cultural importance too. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about the significance of... The particular type of forest that's found on Vancouver Island, right? So, coastal temperate rainforest. Um, I mean, you know, we could have a, a separate episode of, of a podcast of this length of just me listing the benefits and the reasons why they're important. But really quick, um, from an environmental standpoint, I mean, there's there's uh, endangered species that only live in forests that haven't been impacted industrially. Um, we're trying to get away from like the untouched or pristine language because that's not the case. These forests have been utilized by humans for uh, since time immemorial um, but the kind of industrial disruption that we see and that we're fighting against that's more recent to uh, colonialism and to imperial expansion from um, from like our European ancestors um, so yeah you know when when these forests are disturbed the the functions that their their systems they're not just sort of stands of trees they're they're functioning systems and when that gets disrupted uh the species that rely on that plant species animal species can't can't thrive can't come back and in often cases can't survive so in terms of of leaving these forests standing for that reason they also purify uh air and water um you know that's something that we learn as as children but you know in uh, in in lots of jurisdictions on vancouver island water uh quantity and quality is an issue and it's because the forests are the primary uh, control of what keeps that water abundant and clean and and they're being disrupted um, and by disrupted we actually mean like taken away completely clear cut. yeah yeah so so they call it forest management they the the government and industry but you know uh, again these these ecosystems are are not disrupted in in many cases they are turned off um, completely in, in terms of their former function. Um, recreationally and, and culturally, uh, I mean, tourism is obviously a really important industry, especially as we, as we look at transitioning from finite resources to uh, industries that can be 
done on an infinite, potentially infinite basis. So tourism obviously has its flaws, but a lot of it is dependent on this, you know, rainforest where where forest meets the sea uh, reputation that British Columbia has, and and especially coastal British Columbia. Um, so communities that that have more intact forest are uh, are finding more opportunity within the tourism industry, and then culturally, uh, you know, primarily for the indigenous peoples of this coast, there's resources, medicines, um, just ways of connecting with those lands that can only be done in in old growth forests, in in sort of original forests that, that haven't been stopped. Um, and then finally, you know, given that over overlaying every environmental issue uh, on the coast and, and anywhere is is the problem of climate change and and this crisis, and that's particularly relevant when you're talking about the southwest coast of British Columbia because coastal temperate rainforests uh, that are found here a little bit in the Pacific Northwest um, uh, of the of the United States as well are the most uh, carbon. Uh, rich forests in the world so they lock in and store more carbon than any other forest type on the planet it's like a positive feedback loop right right so you know in conserving uh conserving old growth forests was important you know in the 70s uh that's why the movement to protect them started in the late 1970s uh but given what we know about climate change given you know the the trajectory we're on in terms of a carbon-laden atmosphere protecting these forests is is even more important Important from a global standpoint now. So that's sort of like the couple minute rundown of why these forests are important. And Wilderness Committee right now, and since I've known you, has been focused on the Walburn Valley. Right, right. So the Walburn, it's, I don't want to say it's the most important forest left on Vancouver Island, but because there are, you know, if, if it's old growth on Vancouver Island or old growth on the, on the Pacific coast of Canada, it's important and worthy of protection. We're just at that state. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned uh, on Vancouver Island, we've cut more than 90% of the forest. So um, like systems ecologists and and biologists say they use the mantra nature needs half um, with the problematic term of nature. But basically, you know, if if we're serious about ecosystems, um, these ecosystems being able to function into the future, we absolutely need a moratorium on on cutting any any intact forest. You can even see on like I've obviously been traveling across the country and looking at Google Maps a lot to plan my route. And you mm-hmm. can even see when you're looking at Vancouver Island, it looks almost completely white with like the Alpine right. peaks. But yep. then there's like that little corner yeah. of the west like southwest corner of the yeah. island where it's like green yeah and that's yeah it's to the point where you don't i mean we have we have you know uh, a mapper in-house at wilderness committee and and we have access to really uh, high-tech mapping data but really the only thing you need is the satellite photos and you can see you know where we've logged and where we haven't um so the wall run is a, is a combination of an area for given it's on southern vancouver island where so on Vancouver Island, you know, people live uh, and and like large scale settlements are on the south and the east, um, and that's where the logging was done. Uh, the climate's a, l- a little bit milder. The topography is a lot tamer, um, and that's that's where we've lost the most forest, the fastest. So the Walbrun uh, is on southern Vancouver Island. Uh, so forests of its size are less common. It's it's the largest tract of of intact forest on southern Vancouver Island. Um, 
the fact that it's on the South Island means it's, uh, you know, accessible within, you know, a half day's drive from Victoria. Um, it's accessible within a day from Vancouver. So, you know, there's, there's critically important forests on Vancouver Island that are, you know, a day's travel from Victoria, uh, that people, you know, live their whole lives on this Island and never go to, um, doesn't mean they're less important, but in terms of, uh, a strategic campaign to take on uh, the wall brand makes sense because lots of the people that were mobilizing can actually get out there and see what's at stake. Um, it has a little bit of name recognition, maybe not as much as, say, Clockwood Sound, but there was a campaign uh, that successfully uh, protected part of the wall brand as, long as, as well as the uh, neighboring valley to the north, uh, which is called Carmana. Um, these were earlier ca- early campaigns taken on by the Wilderness Committee, other organizations, and, uh, and the grassroots environmental movement, and did set aside some of the wall brand. Um, lots of the valley was left out of protected area in the mid-1990s, kind of as a concession to the logging industry. This wasn't agreed to by environmental groups. No one's going back on a deal that was made then. Um, but given, you know, 20 years of progression uh, in the deforestation campaign that logging companies are hell-bent on, uh, the, the wall brand that's remaining is so much more important. Um, and yeah, taking it on as a, as a campaign now means uh, many different things than taking it on uh, in the mid and early 1990s. Um, obviously, I wasn't around for that part of it, but the work has changed so much, which is what I'm interested to discuss if we have to Yeah, time. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the formula for protecting forests on Vancouver Island for the first several decades of this movement, you know, from the mid-70s till the mid-90s or even the late 90s, uh, was, you know, build uh, public awareness, build momentum, and then put significant pressure on the government that they'd basically turn forests into parks. Um, forests that aren't protected under legislation, you know, there's there's been all sorts of, yes, this is a, you know, variable retention management area, or this is a sustainable management area, but if it's open in any way to the logging industry, they'll, they they haven't uh, proven themselves able to manage sustainably, right? They push these ecosystems to the brink. So getting areas set aside legally as uh, areas of different land use conservation areas is the only way that we see that they're protected. But the political landscape and the ethical landscape has changed, right? Um, so the... the um, slow recognition of indigenous rights in like the mainstream public here uh, has made it basically uh, you know it's taking land and turning it into a park that's not our land isn't acceptable anymore and that's absolutely the way it should be Um, but it means that formula for how we protect these forests has to change and it hasn't changed at the same pace. There's also the legal component. Governments governments say, you know, they can't take land out of land use and change it to park because that's technically changing land use uh, under uh, without... Um, like without First Nations um, agreement and post Chilcotin in British Columbia, that's just most legal experts say that's not a thing anymore. Again, this is the way it should be. This is the way it always should have been. But in this void of, of how do we legally protect land, there are there are sort of certain uh, examples of alternatives, sort of post-provincial park 
uh, protected areas. The Great Bear Rainforest is like a really high profile example, but it, uh, you know, was 20 years in the making. It's not perfect. It's highly contentious in its own right. Um, an example that's really um, close to my heart and that we do a lot of work in support of is tribal parks. Uh, but this isn't recognized by uh, federal or provincial governments, you know, um, so there's still a lot of work to do around building that and building support for the First Nations that are declaring tribal parks. So there's sort of this this void of, you know, how do we how do we protect forests? Uh, because when you're advocating for uh, the, the remaining old growth to be left, you're advocating for land use on land that's not ours. And, you know, it, this isn't 1976 anymore. And that's, you know, these terms like eco-colonialism have been flushed out. We need to, as environmentalists, stare that in the face and figure out how to do environmentalism uh, in, a, in a decolonized way, if, if that's possible. And into this void have stepped these logging companies that are, you know, really kind of in the, the death throes or whatever you want to call it of this flailing industry. The writings on the wall, you know, the most the most hardcore like advocate of clear cut logging in old growth will tell you that it's not a thing that will still be done in 20 years um, because these old growth is a non-renewable resource. So that's, uh, you know, they're, they're really, it's a race to the bottom. All these, all these sort of old school resource management and, and geography terms come into play here. They're flailing around. The government's showing no leadership. Um, the companies, you know, donate astronomical amounts of money to both provincial parties. I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fair treatment they get. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what's happening. And, um, you know, the, the end, at the end of the day, the, the final management of this land has to come from the First Nations. Um, but in the meantime, you know, there's, there's settler entities in the form of logging companies that are liquidating the very last of, of these ecosystems. And, and that has to be spoken up. Uh, someone has to be speaking up on that. Um, and whether we always do it the right way, probably not. But, um, you know, people have got to try. And, and uh, yeah, it's a fun movement to be a part of, um, kind of always asking those questions. It's not always easy, but it's uh, rewarding work to be doing for sure. So um, could you talk a little bit about some of the approaches or strategies, like given this kind of new landscape right. of staring eco-colonialism in the face like you know i know that wilderness committee has had like legal action against it from companies and like what are some of the you know because i'm just imagining for some listeners that are not as familiar with environmental advocacy like they we might not even be sure exactly what that looks like right Right. Um, yeah, I'm kind of. I tend to jump ahead because I get so wrapped up in it. Well, and sometimes. like we know each For other, sure. and right, right, so. and you do do, <laughs> do the work as well. Um, yeah, so. It's different for, for every group or for every individual. Lots of um, really, really awesome um, forest activism is done just by individuals or by, or by groups of individuals that, um, that know each other and have been working for each, with each other. Um, then there's a couple sort of nonprofit groups on the scene, a couple bigger organizations, um, and everyone has a different sort of set, set of strategies and tactics. Um, the Wilderness Committee is a charity, and our charitable mandate is uh, advocacy and education. Um, so we're primarily talking about what's happening, uh, learning what's happening, getting out on the ground, seeing what's happening, talking to different stakeholders, First Nations, government, the company, when, when they'll talk to us, uh, and, and 
and you know translating that back and getting it out to as many people as we can reach um, we do that through publications through media work through public events and uh, and then obviously we we advocate for certain policy you know we don't just say you know this is a huge problem in the forest we advocate what needs to be done um, and in the case of you know these last remnant patches of old growth like the wall brand it's that these forests need to be left alone um, so yeah, the, the campaign has, has been, you know, we've done everything from uh, public events to petition drives to phone blitzes uh, to rallies and marches. We've done uh, events out in the Walbrand, um, banner drops on, on busy overpasses. Um, our, our work, yeah, as you mentioned, did get us, uh, did get us in some, some legal trouble, uh, last fall. Uh, we were named on a, on a court injunction. Uh, there was, uh, blockades in the Walbrand, um, that went up in November and the, the company, uh, didn't know too much about the blockaders because they were independent citizens. So they named, you know, the loudest, uh, groups and individuals that they knew about on the campaign, which was, uh, the Wilderness Committee and then me personally. Um, we argued ourselves off that lawsuit, tried to limit the scope of the injunction. So injunctions are basically legal orders that bar access to the wall brand. Um, we saw it as a, as a, you know, it was a move for intimidation by the company for sure, you know, by, by, uh, taking legal action against an organization uh, and their spokesperson who are really vocal on an issue, uh, you put the chill on anyone else who might want to speak up. Um, that strategy's failed spectacularly and more groups and more campaigners and more individuals have stepped up on that on this since then, um, which has been lots of fun. Um, but yeah, uh, engaging with the First Nation is, is you know, a critical step. We've been in touch with them. Um, the First Nation here is non-treated, uh, like most nations in BC, um, which is, you know, a, a way different context than lots of the rest of, of this country. Um, and that has to be, that has to be respected. The nation uh, has said that they're, they're not uh, standing with, with us on this campaign, but they're not standing against us. So there's this, you know, this weird gray area where we're trying to work respectfully of, of that uh, information that's been that's been given to us by the elected band leadership, but still trying to support the individuals, the elders within the nation who have come to us and said, you know, they're not happy with the logging, they want to see the logging stopped. Um, so they come to speak at our events at the same time that the, the official band position is, uh, is not either for or against the, the logging. Um, so again, trying to be respectful of that, it, I mean, you, you say you hear this and you say it and you it's you know that the mantra of any uh environmentalist or, or social activist who wants to work with first nations as we all need to be uh is that it's it all comes down to relationships um but those relationships aren't built and forged you know overnight or in a matter of weeks and unfortunately uh in a deregulated logging landscape like british columbia that's how fast the companies can move um so you know the We've, we've never felt comfortable, by we I mean me and, and other uh, organizers who are working on the wall brand, we've never felt comfortable with the level of relationships that have been built um, with the First Nation and, and you know, we have, to, we have to keep working at that. But again, there is uh, sort of timelines that we're up against and, and how, to, how, to da- how to balance that is, is really delicate. It's always hard. And uh, yeah, that's a, a little bit of the context for work that Wilderness Committee does. So what is in store for Walbrand in the next like few months? So um, 
the summer is an interesting time. It's a time about getting out there, right? The, we don't get uh, we don't get snowbound um, out here on the west coast. Uh, but okay. <laughs> a, quick, a quick weather brag, but uh, we do have a winter. It's uh, winter and water start with the same um, letter, and that's no coincidence. Uh, it's very wet. Lots of the forest is inaccessible. The roads are harder to drive. Um, the days are shorter. So this time of year is an important one for getting out to the wall brand. There's uh, some on-site mobilizations, gatherings, networking events that are happening out in the valley uh, in into August. Um, gathering photos, um, you know, getting out and, and looking at the logging work that's been done this year is this is the time of the year to do that. Um, it's also always a more sort of difficult time of year for mobilization. You know, people are, are off. Uh, there's no students at UVic. Um, this kind of thing. So yeah, gearing up for for another busy fall is is what we're anticipating, and we're about uh, ten months, uh, nine months now out from an election here in BC, uh, and neither of the two major, well, the the BC Liberals, the governing party here, have said you know there's no problem. BC forests are the best managed in the world, and and they're not. We're not expecting them to change their tune on the wall brand. Uh, we're trying to get the the opposition, the NDP, uh, to get off the fence on this issue. Uh, that hasn't been easy. You know, they're they're really pegged as like the anti-jobs, the anti-industrial development party. Um, the Liberals have done a good job painting them as such. Uh, so to get them to come out against uh, logging in the wall brand. Um, but the r- reality is on Vancouver Island, they, they can't expect to be successful. They can't expect to, to have the support of people who care about environmental issues, which is, which is most people here, without having a solid plan on old growth. Um, we're seeing the momentum build uh, uh, in terms of uh, municipal governments, the, all the municipal governments on Vancouver Island um, through their collective body have passed a motion opposing old growth logging in areas where uh, it's more valuable to, to leave it standing, which is, again, everywhere. Uh, the BC Chamber of Commerce, so like, you know, this traditionally right-leaning pro-development business council has also passed an anti-old growth logging motion. Um, you know, fairly soon it's going to be these log handful of logging companies and the uh, and the governments that they donate, the politicians that they donate to, that are the only ones advocating still for old growth. And that that situation is is sorry for logging old for growth, logging yeah. old growth. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the situation that we're looking forward to to. Um, to, to, to building towards and I can see some movement happening on that in the next year but essentially um, you know the 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 uh, we've, we've built a lot of momentum in the last year on this campaign and if we can keep that um, if we can keep that going uh, you know now I, this time last year if something was happening about the wall brand be it a, a trip out there or a rally or you know uh, like video night or anything I either knew about it or Wilderness Committee was directly involved in organizing it. Um, And now, you know, from time to time, I'll hear about things that we have nothing to do with. It's just, you know, spontaneous, uh, spontaneous events being planned by people who care about this issue. And and that's the sign that it's turned into a a true movement. Um, And and yeah, that kind of thing is what is what politicians and even corporations can ignore. So um, so that's, yeah, what what I'm anticipating, what I'm hopeful for in the next year. We just heard from Torrance Cost, who's the Vancouver Island campaigner with the organization Wilderness Committee. And we'll now hear from Bonnie Glambeck, who's one of the co-founders of Clackwood Action, based in Tofino. Well, uh, my name is Bonnie Glambeck, and um, I work with Clackwood Action here in Tofino. We're a frontline conservation group. 
Um, I've lived in Tofino in Clackwood Sound for uh, almost 30 years now. And I came here from Alberta, which is where I grew up. So Clackwood Action is a relatively new organization, but you just mentioned to me that you have been working on conservation and protection efforts in Clackwood Sound for 25 or 30 years. Yeah. So uh, can you take us back a little bit to how you got started and maybe some of those pivotal blockades in the 80s and 90s? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Well, I, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I moved here um, actually moved here from Toronto. I took a little detour to Toronto and I was very active in the women's movement, the feminist movement and the anti-nuclear movement and the movement uh, in solidarity with Central America. And so when I came to Tofino, I brought those uh, those skills with me and, uh, and applied them to uh, what was happening here with the rainforest movement. And when I first came to Tofino, there was a blockade going on to protect a, a major area of rainforest north of Tofino. And uh, some locals were up there blocking the road, and uh, I decided I would go up and join them. And I ended up being arrested for peacefully uh, blocking that road. Was this on Mears Island? No, this no. was a, a few years after Mears Island. Mears Island took place in the mid-80s, about like 1984, 85. And I didn't get here till 1988. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, it seemed like uh, I had missed Mears Island by a long shot. But, uh, you know, looking back, I actually got here just shortly after but uh, no it was an area called sulfur passage up near the Mijin river and um, people wanted to to stop that road and it turned out in the end that that road was illegal the company didn't even have a permit to build that road um, although myself and 37 other people were arrested for blockading that road and myself and five other women went to maximum security prison for our peaceful action on that road I think the judge wanted to make an example of us and stop others from doing what we had done. How long did you, were you in maximum security? Um, for six days, yeah. And a, and a couple of the women were in for two weeks. Um, it didn't really do the job he had hoped, though. <laughs> I think the public was pretty shocked at, uh, at the harsh treatment that we received. And... Um, and that area today is actually a Class A provincial park. It's been added on to an area called Strathcona Park, and it's one of the largest areas of temperate rainforest left on Vancouver Island, so I'm very proud of that. We were just kind of talking before we started recording about how complicated all of these little zones and areas are. So there's provincial parks, Strathcona, and then some coastal provincial parks, as well as Pacific Rim National Park, which probably people are most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's home to, like for instance, the West Coast trail mm-hmm. for the the Pacific Trail. Um, so I had also mentioned that in 2000, um, Clackwatt Sound was designated as a UNESCO biosphere. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of these little zones or areas. But then you had said that it's not actually the protection that you might think it is. Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, yeah, Clackwatt Sound is a UNESCO biosphere reserve. Um, however, all that does is it lays a designation on top of pre-existing parks and protected areas. So whatever we had before the UNESCO biosphere reserve was uh, designated here, that's the only protection there is for the marine area and the forest area in Clackwood Sound. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword in terms of doing conservation work because many people think, oh, it's a UNESCO biosphere reserve. It must be a big nature protected area. But in truth, it's not. And the good side of it is that 
all levels of government agreed to have it designated as a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve, so including First Nations government. And that recognizes that Clackwood Sound is uh, a globally significant ecosystem. And so that is a very good thing to have that recognition from all levels of government. But then the other edge of that sword, as you were saying, is that it's man and biosphere? Yes, it's the man and biosphere section of, of the UNESCO biosphere. So so really the designation is to help promote sustainable development within the biosphere. <clears throat> um, you know, in my opinion, this is the last great rainforest on Vancouver Island, and really there should be no industrial activity taking place here whatsoever. And unfortunately, we have ongoing logging going on here in Clackwood Sound. There's 20 open net pen fish farms, and there's two proposed uh, open uh, open pit copper mine and gold mine sites. So um, we're far from a nature reserve here. We still have a lot of work to do to uh, to protect the area. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, we had mentioned this is, you know, this is unceded territory. So how does that play into the work that you do and then also these parks that have been established as protection when really the first and you know in many ways only form of governance is indigenous law natural law here Mm -hmm. yeah so this area is um the unceded territory of the nichannel first nations and within clackwood sound there are three uh, nations, the Hershkwit in the north, Ahauzit in sort of the middle part of Clackwood Sound, and Klo'okwiat in the southern part of Clackwood Sound where Tofino is located. And um, yes, they've never surrendered these lands or signed treaties. Um, and so, you know, they they govern their 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 territories here. They uh, they are stewards of their territories, and they are especially in more recent years beginning to take control over these lands and. Uh, uh, to liaise with uh, corporations that are here trying to do to do industrial activity in their their uh, area, a house at First Nation and Heshkut First Nation have recently announced that they want no more industrial logging within their traditional territories, and Klo'okwet First Nation has uh, designated their whole traditional territory as a tribal park to be managed under their stewardship, and they want no um, mining activity within their traditional territories. So do you expect that some of these disputes between First Nations and local allies and then the companies that are trying to do this, will you, do you see that that'll play out in the courts or? Uh, it really depends. I mean, in the case of Mears Island, it did play out in the courts. I think it depends. It's going to depend a lot on our current government, I think, as to how they handle um consultation. Um, currently, the Nochanoth have won a fisheries case that gives them um, the right to to fish commercially and sell that fish. Uh, they won that court case against the Canadian government, and the Canadian government is taking them back to court to appeal the case. And this is just absolutely outrageous that they would do this. And so um, until our government really commits to reconciliation and uh, changing these sort of attitudes, these colonial attitudes, I think we will continue to see court cases. This is something that we've talked about on the podcast in the past, is that reconciliation sounds great and there's a lot of rhetoric around it, but right now that dialogue does not include land whatsoever. So it's just an inclusion of um, 
I suppose, more social elements of reconciliation, like cross-cultural dialogue and the rejuvenation of languages, which is, of course, great, but the Canadian government remains unwilling to really take a look at sovereignty and ownership of land. And on that note, looking at some of the industries that are looking that are that are hoping to operate within Clockwatt Sound. So you've got Imperial Metals of Vancouver, who are responsible for the Mount Polly mine disaster, as I understand it. Mm-hmm, that's correct. Yeah, and Ma- the Mount Polly disaster. I'm not sure if your listeners would be familiar, but it was a lot, one of the largest, uh, the largest mining disaster in Canadian history, and one of the largest in the world, with a, a tailings facility, a tailings pond that gave way and poured millions of gallons of toxins into the uh, Quinell River, which feeds into the Fraser River, um, you know, affecting one quarter of the Fraser River sockeye run. Uh, It seems to me that in a place where you get a tremendous amount of rain, maybe a tailings pond is not such a good idea. No, it's a terrible idea. We're also really prone to earthquakes here on Vancouver Island. And, um, this, uh, this site that Imperial Metals is looking at in Clackwood Sound is within 10 kilometers of Tofino. It's one of four prominent mountains that you see from here. They want to take the top off that mountain, the top third, put an open pit there. And then in behind on the wetlands of the Cypress River, which has all five species of salmon, they want to put this tailings facility. And it's modeled right exactly on what they did at Mount Polly. And so... It's it, it would be such a tremendous risk to the marine environment here, to the to the to the rivers that are nearby, and the village of Ahauset, uh First Nations is only three kilometers away, so it would be a tremendous health risk to that village as well from the you know particulate matter from a copper mine. I just want to like state again what you just said. They want to remove the top third of a mountain That's to make correct. an open pit mine. Yeah, it's mountaintop removal. That's correct. That's got to be a little bit like mind blowing for, you know, for me and for listeners who are from Ontario, maybe not as familiar with some of the ecosystems and the political climate out here in BC. Um, Like how likely is is it, do you feel like, and what is going to be the deciding factor? Like you had mentioned the government Mm -hmm. and like the possibility for court cases, but how likely is it really, do you feel that these, these mines will be built? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite likely. I think I think there will there will be a mine proposal here eventually. Um, the world is running out of minerals, and so it's only a matter of time before they come here to knock on the door of Clackwood Sound. To find, you know, to, to and there are two here. proposed. There are two. They're not technically proposed. They are exploring two area, two different areas, two different properties, as they call them. And so the company that's here is Imperial Metals, as we discussed, and um, they only have an, just a very few number of areas in their queue, and Clackwood Sound is one of them. So, um, and they're constantly looking ahead to develop the next property. So whether they come to Clackwood Sound or not is a matter of, I think, largely, uh, for us, it's going to be largely social license. And so we're really... Um, working with our community to have a discussion about whether we want these mines here or not. And if we don't want them, we need to have a very clear vision about what we do want. Because if they do apply for a mine, we will have only 30 days to respond to the technical briefings. And it could cost over a million dollars for our community to respond. 
So I think we need to be very prepared for that and very clear about what we want before they come knocking here. So you've mentioned salmon. Mm-hmm. Salmon are a staple. Yes. And right now one of your other campaigns is to move the... Maybe you could explain the the salmon mm-hmm. farms yeah. from water to land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have um, here in Clackwood Sound, there's 20 open net pen salmon farms. And so what these are is they're industrial salmon feedlots. Uh, it's just a net that hangs in the water the, and the ocean water flows right through and um, they grow fish in these nets. And they are very high density um, feedlots. And so... These farms uh, breed a lot of disease because the salmon are so crowded into the pens and also parasites. And the diseases and parasites are passed on to the wild salmon, which migrate right past the pens. And this is devastating to the salmon runs. Um, so we would like to see these, uh, these salmon farms re- removed from Canada's oceans. What would be kind of what you would respond to people who are concerned about jobs? Like you had just mentioned that they bus people in uh, to work on the salmon farms because no locals want to work there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's not that we don't need jobs in Clackwood Sound. Certainly, the the especially the First Nations villages are uh, are really hurting for economic development, um, largely because of the remoteness, and then also because of the marginalization and colonization. that they've experienced Um, but what we'd really like to see uh, I believe that if we got these salmon farms off the migration routes out of the ocean that the wild salmon populations would bounce back in Clackwood Sound we have incredible pristine rainforest river habitat for these fish and yet their populations are crashing here but if you go to Alaska or you go farther north in Canada on the BC coast to the Great Bear Rainforest, their salmon populations are doing relatively well. And um, they're, you know, they're employing people like in uh, Bella Bella in uh, the Great Bear Rainforest are employing people, 120 people employed in a fish plant processing wild salmon and other seafoods that are coming from the local area. So I think... I think that we could move into that sort of a model. And I think that food security, salmon security, and you know this sort of uh, local food initiative that's been happening is something that could bring more jobs as well. And it's something that would be way more sustainable than what we're doing here now and would not be tied into global market trends, which is the situation right now with, with mining, with forestry, with salmon farms, all of it. We're at the whim of the global market. So we've heard a little bit about um, the blockades of the 80s and 90s. What are some of the tactics and strategies that you're employing now? Like, what would you say to our listeners um, about action that they could potentially take about Clackwat Sound? Well, you know, Clackwat Sound, and back in 1993, it was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. And... As I mentioned earlier, I was arrested in 1988 when I first came to to Clackwood Sound and to Tofino, and I was involved in blockades um, in subsequent years. And each year that we would go and blockade an area to try to protect the old growth forest, it was always just a small group of very dedicated people who were going and doing that. And um, sometimes we had to take kind of radical action, you know, like we would, nothing ever violent, but you know, it was it was it took some guts to build a tree platform or whatever and uh you know to try to stop the logging activity 
And because of my experience within the anti-nuclear movement and other movements before I moved to Toronto, I realized that we needed to shift our focus to um, to bring more people into the movement and to make it more accessible for them. And so we switched to uh, a Gandhian style of nonviolence, and we moved the blockade site to a place that was more accessible by road. And we started to use more creative tactics rather than kind of extreme tactics. Um, we started this in 1992, and that summer, 70 people were arrested, and we, we thought, wow, we're really, <laughs> we're really making a mark here. Uh, and then in the summer of 1993, uh, we employed the same practices. And that summer, um, more than 12,000 people came through a peace camp that we had set up. And uh, more than 900 people were arrested that summer, and all in a nonviolent manner. And all those people who came through the peace camp were all taught nonviolent um, direct action tactics. Not any, all of them went on to the blockade, but they were all taught consensus. They were all taught the principles of nonviolent uh, direct action. And I really feel that what we did in 1993 has continued to have ripples throughout the movement uh, in the years to come. You know, we even saw it in Seattle in 1999. And, um, you know, part of what we did was we did a, a training for trainers in uh, 1992. So when 1993 rolled around, we had a whole group of people who were already trained to come and do these uh, workshops for people who came to the camp. So was a very successful campaign and so we continue to use those tactics today. I'm wondering then I guess so I was born in 1992 so this is uh this is um 23-24 years ago that you've been working in the community but it was only in the last three years that you started this organization Clockwood Action. That's I know you'd had previous organizations and so in the last three years what has your focus been um in terms of your asks and and have you seen people be receptive to the work that you're doing? Um, What we're focused on now is protecting the biocultural diversity of Clackwood Sound and what that means is uh, also looking at the culture that the ecosystem supports and that's the Nuchanalth culture and that is largely based on the cedar and the salmon so our campaigns really focus a lot on the salmon and what threatens them And so right now we're working to get the open net pen farms out of the waters here to stop these copper mines and gold mines from coming in. And also the other campaign we work on is uh, to stop the pipelines and the oil tankers. Um, There's no pipelines coming through Clackwood Sound, but um, if the pipelines were to come uh, through the Northern Gateway or through Kitimat through Vancouver, the number of tankers that would be plying the waters off Clackwood Sound would increase dramatically, and it's only a matter of time. There would be an oil spill that would cover the beaches of Long Beach and Clackwood Sound. It's a real juxtaposition between, um, you know, as someone from Ontario visiting Tofino for for the first time, um, the kind of like surf and outdoor culture, uh, of the island of Tofino specifically, the juxtaposition is jarring of the industry that's proposed here and then what we perceive to be like the Wild West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering like how what do you what comes to mind when you when you think of that juxtaposition, I guess? Well, it just uh, I guess in the work that we do, we try to keep it forefront in people's minds that this is a very unique area. That, uh, and I think many visitors do realize that, that it's a very special place that doesn't exist very many places on the planet. There's not many places left that are 
untouched uh, by industrial human activity? Um, I guess my final prompt would be, um, first of all, what would you say as someone who has experienced like basically a career of activism and including direct action to younger activists now who are looking at the global capitalist system and kind of going, oh my God, what do we do? And there's amazing, amazing work being done, but like, it's sometimes really hard to keep going with your activism. Like, Mm -hmm. how did you, I guess you found a niche in your community and being very active in Clackwatt Sound that ties into these global issues. So what would maybe some advice be? And then how can we uh, reach your organization? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one thing that's made my work sustainable over my lifetime was discovering the work of Joanna Macy. And she she was very prominent uh, in working in the environment, in the nuclear movement when I was a young activist. And I basically learned that you need to have sustainable, (laughs) sustainable activism. And it means taking care of yourself and nurturing yourself and taking a break when you need to take a break and doing the things that feed you, that feed your soul. Like there's a reason why activists step up to the plate and uh, and want to make a difference in the world is because they love the world. They love their communities. They love nature. Uh, they love people. And so if you're going to put yourself out as a warrior and put that energy out there, I think it's also very important to take time to nurture that and just let yourself be in whatever nurtures you, whether it be your community, your family, your friends. or na- For me, it's nature. I really love connecting and rejuvenating in nature. So... I think I realized when I was in my 20s that this was something I would do for my lifetime. And so sometimes you need to take a year off. You need to take two years off. You need to go do something different. Um, Keep it sustainable and uh, figure out what your gift is and, uh, and just pursue that. Pursue that passion and give that gift back to the world. Taking a year or two off, that's uh, an interesting one that I had not considered. So, <laughs> And then um, how might we reach uh, Clackwood Action? You can reach Clackwood Action, uh, clackwoodaction.org, uh, Clackwood Action on Facebook or Twitter. And is there anything we can do, like send an email or, uh, you know, add our signature to a petition or something like that? If you go to the website, you'll find yeah. action items there. Great. Yeah. And so you have presentations every Tuesday night in the summertime. We do, yes. And that's part of um, building that kind of social capital that's required to fight against these industrial projects. That's right, yeah. So we do, we've been doing this uh, for four summers now. We Every Tuesday night we have a presentation and we, we talk about the ecology, about the cultures in the area, and uh, about the rights of nature and about uh, about the challenges that we have here with some of the industrial activity. And we really celebrate what we have here because I think that there's a lot more, you know, we were talking about the sustainability of activism. I think uh, sustaining your activism through love is much uh, more sustainable than sustaining through anger. And so, um, you know, part of what we are trying to do is help people fall in love with this area and fall in love with the world. Thank you for tuning in to The Built Environment this week. My name is Brenna, and our podcast is produced by myself and Marsha McLeod, who is currently in Toronto, and I will be heading back east, uh, kind of wrapping up our West Coast tour for The Built Environment. 
and bringing you some pretty exciting new programming throughout the course of the month of August. And so I encourage you to subscribe on iTunes if you're an iPhone user, if you haven't already. It's a really easy way to access our content, as well as pulling our RSS feed from our SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash built environment. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the built enviro or check out www.thebuiltenviro.com where we're going to be posting more multimedia content in future. You can also email us with questions or comments at thebuiltenviro at gmail.com. And if you're in the Kingston area, tune in Thursdays at 7 p.m. to The Built Environment. There's also just a really tremendous amount of information about the issues we discussed uh, on today's episode, which you can find on the Wilderness Committee and Plaquette Action websites, which are www.wildernesscommittee.org and www.clackwattaction.org, which is spelled C-L-A-Y-O-Q-U-O-T-A-C-T-I-O-N.org. You can also follow the two organizations on Twitter and Facebook and the organization Friends of Clackwatt Sound at focs.ca also has a good deal of information about ancient forests, wild salmon, and mining in Clackwatt Sound. Thanks as always for tuning in. Thank you.